Cooper here, another Baseball America podcast. Got a different kind of podcast that we started rolling out here at Baseball America. It's the Baseball America Tech Podcast. I've long been interested in the technology of baseball. I remember the first time I saw a Rapsodo, a Trackman, an Edutronic. There's a lot of different technology that influences the game, that affects the game, that that I, understandably it's hard to fully fathom and understand. And, and I hope that this podcast is going to help that. I'm going to talk to people involved with technology in baseball and, and get their insights on how we've gotten to where we are now, but also where we're going to go in the future. So with that in mind, we're going to talk to a lot of people who are involved with companies in technology. And I do want to preface this by saying I'm going to let them talk about their products. That doesn't mean this is an advertisement, uh, doesn't mean it's an endorsement, but at the same time, these are people who are deeply involved in baseball tech and as such, I want to hear their opinions. I want to hear what they say, and I hope that you will too. If it is something sponsored, we will flag that and let you know that it is sponsored. But these are not sponsored podcasts. These are podcasts where we talk to people involved in technology in baseball and get their thoughts, their opinions, and their insights into tech in baseball. Hello, everybody. It's JJ Cooper on a special edition of the Baseball America podcast. I am very excited to be joined by Tom House. And if we're going to talk about Tom's biography, we could we could go in in so many different directions. You, if you're a casual fan, uh, I think you probably uh, remember him most as as the uh, the 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 major league player who caught uh, Henry Aaron's 715th home run. If you are an NFL fan, you may know him as throwing coach for Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and, and others. But what we're here on the podcast to talk about today is, is there's a, a lot of uh, other things we could touch on. But I, I'm really interested in us talking about uh, Tom's work in biomechanical analysis, working, kind of understanding the throwing motion for pitchers. And kind of what he's doing, what he's done with that, but also what he's doing now with Mustard, a uh, biomechanical analysis uh, app that is that is out, that is uh, helping uh, with uh, from players all the way down to the youth level. So, Tom, thank you for the time. And I to just kind of dive in on this, <laughs> you've been involved in studying and understanding the throwing motion for for a few years now, a few decades now. Compared to where you were when you started looking at this, you know, going back even to your days, you know, your playing days to now, obviously it's changed dramatically, but is there anything that jumps out that's like, you now know that if you thought of it, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you would have been shocked that, that you've learned this, or has it kind of been a, a steady progression of, okay, we've learned these things, but those fit what I thought I understood 20, 30, 40 years ago. JJ, that's a great setup, um, and it, it leads into what I consider um, a path that I had no clue that I was following. Uh, the one thing I know about good coaches is they always have this little internal feel saying, I hope this is right. Whatever I'm giving the athlete I'm working with, you just kind of like hope that it's, that it's correct. 
And what I got lucky at, I, I was right in the crease between old school, where everybody taught with experience what their eyes were telling them, and new school, where we actually had the technology that has revealed that our eyes sort of lie to us. The human movement is uh, very predictable, but the human eye could only see about 40 frames a second at the most. And most of what takes place when a pitcher throws a ball or a, a hitter swings a bat, things along those lines, take up, you know, 200, one 250th to 1 700th of a second. So what happened in the mid to late 80s, this new technology called three-dimensional motion analysis came out. And I got a second mortgage on the house, bought a system, and just realized that what we were teaching based on what we were seeing wasn't quite right. And it wasn't all wrong, but it wasn't quite right. So what motion analysis technology gave us, gave me in particular, was a better look at what the best in the game actually did. So I, that's a long answer to a short question. Technology has allowed us to actually identify what these kids are doing. That's also one of the things that has stood out to me kind of following your career over the, you know, over, over several years. It's hard to come to a realization that's something that you've been teaching. You, you, I like how you put it. As a coach, you hope that what you're teaching is right. But at the same time with that, if that's your hope, you also have to have kind of a self-evaluation process to understand at some point, maybe this thing that I was teaching isn't right. And I remember at times in your career where you've kind of said, no, I thought that this was the way to do it. And this wasn't the way to do it. And then you adjust and, and go in a different direction. That can't be easy. Uh, you know, I kind of, how do you do, I mean, for, you know, if you're a coach listening to this, if you're someone, you're a trainer or whatever, how do you kind of do that evaluation cycle where you may realize that what I thought, you know, what I was teaching before is something that I need to discard and, and go in a different direction. Jay, that's good. It's, it's called the confirmation bias. We have a tendency is, you know, all human beings will only pay attention to things that confirm what we already believe or we already see. And the, I think the good coaches that are out there, and for whatever the reason, maybe because I wasn't a great player, that I, you know, had to, I struggled just to survive on the elite level, um, you're always having to challenge yourself. And the greatest right we have is the right to change, but it's also the hardest thing to do. So somewhere in between the, comp the confirmation bias and this need to change is where I've, I kind of find myself. And the really cool thing about today's sports environment is that we've got some great technology. I mean, the, the science out there and the technology out there is affording us access to things that even 10 years ago, we, there was no chance we'd understand just looking at it. So it's a combination of old age treachery and experience. The fact that I've been around for 45 years and combine that with and this desire to continue to get better as a coach and then to be supported by good people around me and good technology. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better for me. I've been looking for a way to retire for the last few years. I don't think it's gonna happen, 
And believe it or not, JJ, I think we're just now scratching the surface on the most efficient way to look at mechanics, functional strength, mental, emotional, and even something as simple as sleep and nutrition for recovery. So this is a very exciting time for the sports world. With that, is when you say that we're kind of at the cusp of something, is that, you know, why is that? I guess I won't presuppose. Why is it do you think that that we have significant further advances right around the corner when it comes to efficient, you know, efficiency of a delivery or recovery or, or, or all those things? Well, we can actually look at the best in the world at what they do. And, and by identifying what the best in the world do, it, it breaks itself into like there's one set of rules for why these guys are Hall of Famers, but there's also a million interpretation, we, interpretations. We call it personally adaptive. In other words, Jake DeGrom looks a little different than Nolan Ryan does or did pitching in baseball. But actually, when you, when you quantify the variables, they're virtually the same. So you take the absolutes. There are biomechanical imperatives and there are biomechanical inevitabilities. And you take away style uh, or tech, and if you take away the, their unique style, the way they look doing what the absolutes are, it's, uh, it's measurable now. You can actually measure, quantify, and the hard part becomes, do you have a deliverable? Once you've measured and quantified, do you have a teach that will fix the issue? And that's where I think uh, our group uh, maybe have a little bit of a, an, an edge on everybody else's out there because we've been doing it so long. With that, you know, as I look at kind of the biomechanical side and the, the fact that we're now we're getting to a point, you know, I've, I've obviously this is probably the perfect time to mention, you know, you, you are one of the co-founders of Mustard that that's working uh, on this. But as we get from uh, effectively, we've had motion capture before, you know, a- ASMI has been doing motion capture in Birmingham for for a couple of decades now, but there's a very big difference between markered motion capture and doing markerless motion capture, right? Like you can't, yes. <laughs> yeah. Markered motion capture is doing something in a lab uh, effectively. And that may, that may in essence affect your evaluation because you're wearing all these things that you don't normally wear, you're not, you know, all that. We're now entering the world of markerless motion capture and it seems to me one of the the biggest hurdles we have of markerless motion capture is ensuring that what we learn from that is evaluated properly. It, you know, exactly, you're exactly right. And there probably for the people that are listening, um, there's different types of model. There's an academic model, there's a medical model, and there's a coaching model. And while they're all very similar. Obviously, the coaching model is what you and I are talking about right now. Right. So it doesn't involve double-blind studies and all the things that go with, with research. It involves the practical application of what is being captured. Now, I got lucky with my first system. I got an, an aerial system. Gideon Aerial had a system out that um, you captured in you know, with the athlete in real time and you went back to the lab and you hand digitized. The, the marker systems that are out there, they get great information, 
And believe it or not, there's a lot of, a lot of efficacy there. The, the lab analysis and the on the field analysis are, are very similar. But when it comes to what you finally come down as modeling, you have to be able to teach from it. So what's out there right now is all good, whether it's academic, whether it's medical or whether it's coaching. But with the technology and the measurement, you have to come up with something. Once you've identified a problem, you have to come up with a fix. And that's where the people that are surrounding me with mustard and the ones that continue to support me with uh, the National Fishing Association and 3DQB. That's where we've kind of got an edge in everybody because we have so many people in the sample and so, so much, I, I would call time and distance over the last four years coming up with the teachables. So how do you do that though? Cause that's the, again, that's the converting very useful data, but into a teachable, you know, perspective is, is a big hurdle because a, a, a lot of this there, you know, and this has been a, an issue. I think you, you have, when we, especially when you talk about the youth arena, you have very well-meaning, you know, parents, coaches, but for whom a lot of this is kind of beyond them, understandably. You know, they're you're, not, you're exactly they don't have right. 20 years of biomechanical, uh, you know, education and analysis, you know. You're, you're spot on again. Um, you've done, I'll tell you what, I'll pile around with you anytime. You've done your homework here. There, there are windows of trainability. Um, and there, there's four basic windows of trainability. There's a neurological window that is age specific. There's a muscle window, which is age specific. There's a skill acquisition window and there's a skill retention window. And what you have to do, depending on age and these various personal factors, the problem identification and solution will have different teachables, if that makes any sense. There's three things that keep a young arm healthy. There's mechanical efficiency, there's functional strength, and there's workload. And what we've been able to do over the last 40, 45 years is grab really good data on all those things. Pitch totals, for example. Um, with ASMI, you, me you mentioned Birmingham and what Glenn Fleissig has been doing down there. A bunch of us put our heads together about 15 years ago, and we have age-specific pitch totals mm -hmm. for inning, for games, for a week, for a month and for a season. So again, science and technology and research are, are matching up. When it comes to motion analysis, we're getting smarter and smarter about the difference between an, an elite uh, skill acquisition athlete or an, an elite skill retention athlete. Like for example, if you follow, you mentioned football stuff earlier, Brady has been talking about throwing till he was, or being competitive as a quarterback till he was 45. Well, we already proved it in baseball that it can be done. Um, when I was with the Texas Rangers, Nolan Ryan, obviously a Hall of Famer, mm -hmm. he pitched till he was 46, 47. But then a guy like Jamie Moyer, who's more, more, a lot more like I am than Nolan Ryan was, pitched till he was 48. So you identify and you personally adapt it and, and that's where the cool thing is. Uh, if, like if you were to go through emotion analysis for your golf swing, 
using mustard or the way you throw anything. It basically, everything we've been doing for the last 40, 45 years is can now be captured from your cell phone, sent into mustard, goes to the cloud, comes back with a kind of a report card on what's good or bad about your delivery and how to fix. So probably the most exciting part of my coaching life is happening right now. We'll be right back with more with Tom House, but before that, a quick message. When we talk about young pitchers, obviously there's a variety of, uh, of issues that, you know, that could keep them from being mechanically efficient. But obviously there are also some, some kind of through lines. And, and you hit, I, I think, a key part of this that a lot of times, you know, it's difficult to fully understand if you're a young pitcher coming up, you know, developing and all. Functional strength is one that that is a difficult part of this because you may not be able, units not may may not be strong enough yet to do some of the things that you know that you need to do. But they're you know the maintaining of that, having that core strength, the the parts of it that you need to do it can be a hurdle. But from a mechanical perspective, are there any trend you know through lines that are the most common to you that you see that you know it's like this is something that we can regularly clean up and by doing so really help, uh, you know, a, a, a young pitcher in their mechanics. Sure. Uh, I'll give you the cliff note version of mechanics. Keep your eyes level, go fast, keep your front side firm and drag your back foot to the ball leaves your hand. And when it comes to strength, you have to realize no matter what your age, you're only as strong as your weakest link and you can only accelerate what you can decelerate. So knowing how many muscle groups accelerate an arm and how many muscle groups decelerate an arm and then looking at the athlete for what his age is, like it does a pre-adolescent, somebody that's 13 or younger, uh, does no good for that youngster to go in the weight room and try to get strong with heavier weights because there's no testosterone in the system. Right. And heavy weights, won't help your muscle, and it's actually hard on your joints. But then when testosterone hits, say high, high school and early college, matching the nervous system with the muscular system in a weight training program will actually allow skill to develop quicker. So it's a combination of all. And one of the things that uh, when it comes to strength, if a young person's head, when he goes to throw, if his head moves before weight shift or front foot contact, it's usually mechanics. If his head moves after weight shift or foot contact, it's strength. So there's a little couple hints for your listeners when you're looking at an athlete of any age. And if you can identify a mechanical efficiency and a functional strength and monitor their workloads, He's going to be a healthier, more efficient athlete, no matter what 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 age he is. I, I, that's interesting to me because, like you know, obviously we see with I would describe as elite high school pitchers a number of times you'll see a pretty significant what you know scouting term the head whack, you know, at the end of a delivery. I mean, some to the point where their caps flying off, and obviously they're throwing right. with intent. But if I'm in, understanding what you're saying, you know, you're saying that some of that is probably kind of a a uh, strength gain still to come in, in some ways. Yeah, since you, that's you, heard, you heard exactly right. And again, we were fortunate enough to be able to deal with the elite athletes in, in the data capture early. 
And that translated all the way down to our eight, nine and 10 year olds. Remember when we talked, I, we might have said it off camera. Um, there's one set of rules, but there's a million interpretations. Right. And they have to be looked at age specific. And if I, if I could just take one second to take a sidebar so that that youngster that grows five inches between his eighth grade year and his fresh, freshman year and gains 15 pounds, for every one inch of growth and five pounds of weight gain, it pushes him back two months with his biological age. So the biggest kid is a freshman, all right, where he's 14 years old may only be 12 in his biological age. So there's another thing that we're able to to actually identify with mustard. So you, you, again, you have to be very careful about not placing expectations just because of the way a kid looks. Right, I mean, it makes sense. You're essentially, again, to go, there are a lot of the old adages that that have truth to them. And one of them is, is that the longer your levers are, you know, especially if you've just gone through a growth spurt, the, the more time it takes, not just to kind of learn that body, but at the same time, you're, you're pro- I, as, as I see it, you, you probably have strength gains that have to catch up to that as well, because you're, you're exactly right. The pendulum's some, longer oh yeah. than it was. Some of those six foot three inch 14 year olds, their toes and their nose don't, they can't, there, there's no connection. Their, their brain can't receive or send what exactly it takes to catch, throw, pitch, whatever it might be. So that's very perceptive. So, okay with where you are right now, like when we say, what's the, what's the next two, three years with mustard, but also just with kind of the technology that we have now, I'm going to get to the technology to come, but with the technology we have now, how can things be different for the next generation of young pitchers than it was for the previous generation? We have to continue to capture everything we can capture, spin rate, angle, late movement, extension, biomechanical efficiency, you know, functional strength ratios, continue to capture all that. And as the science grows and the application grows, take the feedback and learn from it. Simple things like if you're stiff and sore on the front side of your shoulder or the front side of your elbow, it's usually a mechanical problem. If you're stiff and sore on the back side of your shoulder or the back side of your elbow, it's usually a functional strength problem. Those coaching things that the medical community or the academic community may or may not know about, you have to take all the information, quantify it, come up with measurables, but then come up with a deliver a deliverable you can instruct from. That's the challenge. Can we take this? We live in an information age. Can we take all this information and democratize it you know, get it to where instead of just the elite athletes, the five, you know, three, 2%, that number one can afford access to great information and instruction, but can all, you know, also, uh, can they afford it and can they apply it? Can we you know, democratize it? Can we put it in the hands of a mom and a dad of a 12 or 11 year old and afford them exactly the same science and application that the elite get. That's the key. I think the numbers that we've learned is 80% of 
uh, male and female athletes younger than they, they quit playing by the time they're 14. And that that's really a tragedy because how many Nolan Ryans or Tom Brady's go home because they never access good information. They didn't have the opportunity. And that's what we're trying to fix. The power of play, getting kids to play longer just through high school. Uh, if we could have them do that, stay away from injury, have fun with what they're doing and understand all the cool things that sports will do for you. That's kind of the mission statement that we're chasing down with mustard. And it's a personal commitment to me. Uh, I literally want to mentor as many kids as I possibly can before I punch my ticket. So now, again, I look at where we are now as far as technology and it's, it, everything that kind of was on the wish list uh, that I would, I would ask people 10 years ago, everything on that wish list pretty much is, is kind of been checked off now. We, we have uh, much lower cost, high speed video uh, ability for, you know, to, to look at in minute detail, 900,000 frames per second, that kind of level. We have pitch tracking abilities and, yeah. you know, with optical and radar based systems that again, if you go back, 10 years ago, even were not, you know, non-existent. You're exactly yeah. right. And, and, and at, at a, we're still not at an utterly consumer level, but at a level where it's much more pervasive than it would have been even five years ago, where it was like, okay, yes, you can have a TrackMan system if you're a college or a pro team, but that's not, you know, something that most, most, uh, you know, standard pitcher are going to be pitching in from. Now we have much more lower, you know, consumer level. Now, you know, we, we needed some kind of, now we, as you talked about with mustard, we now have a ways to do motion capture analysis with a cell phone, which is something that pretty much at this point, everyone has. Yeah. We have that. These are all these technologies that have developed and are continuing to develop. What's, what's out there now? What's on the wish list? What, did, what does not exist right now that would give us another step forward as far as development or improving, you know, health of pitch, whatever it is, what is kind of something that's on the still far horizon right now that you wish right. you could it, see? JJ, you're teeing it up for me perfectly. Thank you. Uh, the, the next frontier um, is already sneaking up on us and that's what's going on um, between the ears, the, the six inches between the ears of these athletes. I think Yogi Berra said it best, 90% uh, of sports are 50% mental. Um, Mustard also um, has available uh, a new technology called focus band, where you can actually, it looks just like a regular sweatband. You can put it on a young athlete's head and you can watch him in practice or competition. And through Hertz of electrical activity, you can identify when he's thinking, when he's not thinking, when he's lost focus, when he's lost concentration, we can actually quantify when he's in the zone. So this being able to measure cognitive capacity and understand how to develop the brain um, and utilize the strengths and weaknesses of what goes on in competition to help the kid rather than hurt them. What we're learning um, through focus band 
um, that we all get the same basic feelings at the start of a golf round or at the start of a game. Everybody gets, you know, nervous, angry, scared, all the same emotions. But the athletes that produce, the athletes that go on to compete, they manage that process better. And being able to, and it's wireless, you know, you can, you could sit um, on the bench and watch your child compete or sit in the stands and watch your child compete and look at your um, laptop and see what's going on in his, his or her head why he or she is competing. That's the next frontier as far as the mind is concerned. And all the big money in sport right now is being spent on recovery. We're learning that if you're an athlete that can recover uh, in two days or less, um, you stay and everybody else goes home. On the major league level, an elite pitcher that can recover in 48 hours um, it's worth two games on his record. So instead of being 10 and 10, he's 12 and eight. And 12 and eight in the, in the major leagues right now is very important to the organization and very important financially to the athlete. So recovery, things on nutrition and sleep are huge. So those are gonna be the next horizons to go with the gains we've made with mechanics and strength. Did that make sense? No, that does. Uh, it's interesting when you tell said about the zone, I, I've been long interested in kind of the zone flow state, you know, that kind of the, and I, again, zone's a tough term because I, I've heard debates from elite athletes about the zone. I, I think uh, I'm, I'm a Steeler fan going back to my childhood. And I remember Joe Green, you know, has a quote where he says, people talk about the zone. You know, this is one of the best defense attacks of all time. He said, I was in the zone one time in my entire career. It's a 74 uh, AFC championship game against the Raiders. And I was in the zone. Ayrton Senna had the zone. He, you know, he says it's rare. Like he only got to one time where he kind of got to almost an unconscious feeling. But there's that kind of zone that like almost otherworldly, you know, but there's also that point where, the conscious kind of slips into a little bit more of, I don't want to call it automatic, but that again, flow states, another term I've heard for it. I'm assuming that you've kind of found this all interesting too. Like what you're, I, it's, it's kind of trying to figure out ways to get into that, that part where all of the, all of the distractions kind of flow away. Correct. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking yes. about there. Yes. Your description is actually pretty good. I'll give you our definition of the flow state or the zone is when thinking is inversely proportionate to the stimulus of the environment. Now, those are really big words. No, but that makes sense. Well, you can't think and do. And what we have definitions using the, the focus band to where it's quiet eye and motion. And with focus band, you can actually measure it. Quiet eye, when, when you're thinking, your eyes twitch. I mean, it's almost, mm-hmm. you can just barely see it, if, even if you're looking for it. But when your eyes become quiet, you get into this state that the Japanese call motion, where the, there is no thinking. It's, the, it's describing the state of, of flow where it happens without thinking. And it goes all the way back to samurais 
and the, their swords. If you're thinking about being a samurai and you've got your sword, if you're thinking about moving or protecting with a sword, you're already dead. Mm-hmm. You, you have you have to let your 90 trillion cells do what they do without thinking. And then it gets into, you know, where you got to pay attention to process, not outcome. Kids have stress and anxiety, and you have to learn how to manage stress and manage anxiety. And you have to have little toolkits to help even a 10-year-old with what everybody goes through where you're out there saying, please don't let this ball get hit to me or I don't want to walk, or I don't want to strike out, or whatever it is, um, we can actually measure that with a focus band, like we were, like we were doing with early motion analysis. So, so think of the next frontier is we're going to get MRI, MRIs of the brain and the nervous system in practice and in competition. So that's what's coming sooner rather than later. And that might be the first time I've said it that way in any interviews in the last six months. So kudos to you. With that, like, it's funny, like the, the flip side of this is when we talk about in, in baseball, the thing, uh, Steve Blast disease, whatever, that's to kind of go with your definition. That's when a player is no longer able to do things that ha- they've chunked, essentially that their body kind of has processed into a, an almost you know, subconscious activity and they've turned it into something that they can't do without thinking about. And yeah, we call and, that the creature. Right. And when you, when you get the creature there, there is, it's a double bind where you're thinking and your feeling don't match up and, and you freeze something as simple as catching a baseball becomes impossible. Throwing the baseball, if you're a catcher, throwing the baseball back to the pitcher becomes impossible because your conscious mind and your subconscious mind are at a, they're battling each other. So that's another thing that focus band can identify. And we have a, a number of different fixes. Um, it's pretty, if you have fixes for that, that's huge because that's been obviously a, uh, the, the recovery rate. Once you have the creature, the thing, whatever you want to call it has, has obviously been, been pretty bleak for a long time. Well, we're single source fixes. We, we work with a lot of athletes of all ages and all sports that do have the creature. And I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a little hint. I, I can't give you too much, but um, it boils down to closing one eye, closing the other eye or closing both eyes and teaching your body how to throw with visualizing rather than seeing. That's as far as I'm going to go with it. That, that's that's. This has been fascinating. I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but you know, it is something where I will let you before we run. I, you know, if someone is interested in mustard, what are they? You know, how do they find out more? I would really encourage, even if you're just curious, if everybody would go to Team Mustard, M S T R D, that's mustard without the vowels. TeamMustard.com, and just kind of see what, what we're doing and where we're going. Uh, I honestly feel like this is the best thing I've done in my coaching career. And we're just getting started. It's been enjoyable to talk about this. It's I, the, the brain component, the, the, the studying that and all something I'd not thought of before. So I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for the time. And uh, you know, again, it'll be, 
we're, we're heading into a hopefully more normal year this year when it comes to baseball. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I hope for all of us that we get to see a lot more people kind of figuring a lot of this stuff out because we're, we're going to have people, you know, who didn't get to, to pitch last year, especially at the minor league level, uh, returning to action. So it'll be, I agree. Cool. I, I, hope, I hope you're right. Let's, let's do this again in a couple of months and I'll have more to share with you and we'll have a peek at how good the last two months have been. Sound good. Sounds good. Thank you for the time. All right, JJ, have a blessed day. Same to you.